This is another area where our kind of weird shape lent interesting advantages to the business. Because from the customer's perspective, what are they buying from us? They're buying a smart, talented person or team at Pilot is doing the work of keeping their books up to date and helping them with their tax prep and all that stuff. 95% of the software we build is invisible to the customer. The customer of the software is actually our internal accounting team. We're sort of making, we're building the Iron Man suit for them. And the consequence of that is, in some ways, the, the customer of the software sits in the building with us. My name is Wasim Daher, CEO and co-founder of Pilot. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Wasim Daher built a platform for his team to provide your startup with accounting services. All this and more on Code Story. Wasim Daher had two immigrant parents from Lebanon. He was born in the States after they migrated in the 80s. With his relatives around him, he saw that it was possible to run your own business and to do it well. His love for computer science really culminated when he went to MIT to complete his undergraduate studies, where he actually met his current co-founders. He's married with a two-year-old, so all additional time he has outside of work is spent with his young family. Wasim and his co-founders have done many startups together. Inevitably, with every business they started, they found the back-office-type processes were important to have each time, but not the area of expertise for the founders, and much less, not the focus of said business. So they built the service they wish they had in these prior ventures. This is the creation story of Pilot. Pilot provides finance, accounting, and tax services, principally for high-growth startups from pre-seed to Series D. And when you work with Pilot, you're paired with a dedicated team of experts who are full-time employees of ours, and we're focused on taking care of all this stuff for you, helping your business grow. And under the hood, sort of where the magic comes from is we also have a team of engineers, and the engineers are building what is effectively the Iron Man suit for our accounting team, software that lets us work more accurately, more reliably, more efficiently. And the way we came to this problem was really pain we had in our previous ventures. So this is actually the third startup for me and my co-founders, Jeff and Jessica. The first one was acquired by Oracle. The second one was acquired by Dropbox. And one of the things that we felt very painfully, and that I think any business owner of any kind feels, is, look, you set out to start your company because there's some product or service you want to bring into the world. And inevitably, what you find is there's all this back office stuff you need to deal with. And the challenge with it is that it is both important, like it's critical that you get it right, and it's generally not the area of expertise or the area of high leverage for the business owner. And so we really said, having struggled with this ourselves in our previous companies, we said we want to build the thing we wish we could have, the service we wish we could have hired when we were operating our previous ventures. And that's really how we came to pilot. Tell me about the MVP. So that first product you built, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? 
So here's the beautiful and honestly, like a little bit contrarian approach that we took with Pilot. So the two insights that kind of underpinned Pilot were ones, again, as I said, were sort of born out of pain we felt in the previous companies. The first insight was, in the first company, I did the accounting. And first of all, that was a huge mistake, but I did the accounting. And so I spent all of this time kind of like clicking around in QuickBooks, trying to get everything up to date, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what was very clear to me at the time was, huh, there's a lot of this work that's really tedious, that's really error prone, that honestly, computers are really, really good at. So insight number one is, if we're smart about building the right software systems, we can have the computer do a bunch of this work. But insight number two, and this is what's gonna tie into your MVP question, no business owner has ever said, please sell me accounting software. Like what the business owner wants is, can you take care of this problem for me? So we did a weird thing. We said, you know what? We're going to be the company that does the accounting. And so the MVP literally was, I called up some friends of mine who had startups and I said, who's doing your bookkeeping today? And they said, no one. And I said, congratulations, I'm your new bookkeeper. And I did their bookkeeping in QuickBooks Online along with my co-founder, Jeff. And then our co-founder, Jessica, looked over our shoulders and started to write the first lines of Python code to take the most mechanical and tedious and error-prone pieces of the bookkeeping process to build tools that could either fully do them or that could do, you know, maybe the, the first 80 or 90% so we could focus our time and effort and energy on the tricky, subtle pieces. So even in those early days, like with the with building the product that, you know, first 10% or whatever the percentage was, right? You have to make certain decisions and trade-offs when you're making that product. It could be tech debt, feature cut, you name it. Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to work through and how you coped with them. One of the very big questions that we grappled with very early on was, again, if the thesis is we're building software to kind of help do the accounting... Are we building it on top of an existing accounting system? And if so, which one? Or are we building the accounting system from scratch? And the pros and cons here are fairly straightforward, right? The pro of working on top of someone else's system is that it already exists. It already has users. Other people in the ecosystem know about it. The con is you're never going to get the level of kind of flexibility with what you can do with it than you would if you built your own thing. And, you know, the pros and cons for the alternative approach are, are the opposite of that. And very early on, we decided, you know what, rather than trying to build our own accounting system, we're going to do all of this work on top of QuickBooks. We'll talk to QuickBooks over its APIs, and we're going to try to focus the engineering effort on not recreating features of QuickBooks, but instead eliminating work that the bookkeeper or accountant would have otherwise done by hand on top of QuickBooks. It also like led to a bunch of pain too, because like you're constrained by the API, like the QuickBooks API will let you do certain things and not do certain other things. And they kind of have a mental model of how it all works. Like the engineer in me wants to be like, we just got to re-architect the whole thing. Like, let's just build it from scratch. We'll have total control. And it really took a lot of restraint to say, well, no, look, there are huge benefits. Like Intuit has already dumped, I don't know, billions or hundreds of millions or whatever of dollars into making this thing. In some ways, it's a bit wild to say, no, the first thing we're going to do is try to recreate this from scratch with our, you know, three-person team. 
So from that point, you've built it on top of QuickBooks, right? You've built your MVP. It's working. You're gaining some traction. How how did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think to kind of wrap that in a box, what I'm looking for is how did you build your roadmap and decide or go about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to recreate with Pilot? This is another area where our kind of weird shape lent interesting advantages to the business because from the customer's perspective, what are they buying from us? They're buying a smart, talented person or team at Pilot is doing the work of keeping their books up to date and helping them with their tax prep and all that stuff. 95% of the software we build is invisible to the customer. The customer of the software is actually our internal accounting team. We're sort of making, we're building the Iron Man suit for them, right? We're building software that lets them work more efficiently, more accurately, more reliably. And the consequence of that is in some ways, the the customer of the software sits in the building with us. And so the way we'd figure out what to work on is actually we were, we were very aggressive about time tracking how much time we're spending on each customer and specifically what steps of the accounting process we're spending time on customers. And the consequence of that is we can look at that every month and say, huh, you know, we're spending XYZ number of hours on step seven subpart B. Well, let's let's take a look at that step and let's figure out how to make the computer do it or let's figure out how to make the computer do most of it so that we can become more efficient. So in many ways, it was almost like optimizing like a function call or something. You would look at like the output of the profiler, like, okay, how much time are we spending in different parts of the code where the code here is the process of closing the books and which one of these can we streamline which will give us the most bang for the buck? And that's not to say that there's no customer facing software. There is like, there's a portal where you give us access to all of your systems and where we can correspond with you. And like, obviously the approach I just described doesn't work for deciding what's on that roadmap. But in the earliest days, remember the alternative to buying, you know, a subscription to Pilot or to working with our team is you'd go down the street and you'd work with, you know, the accountant that has an office there. And that person doesn't have any software at all. And so in some ways, the software is kind of not the point. The software exists to allow us to make sure we can do a really high quality job at scale and not because you're like, I want to buy a software product to do X, Y, Z. You, the buyer, are like, I need someone to take care of this stuff for me who I know and trust and who can scale with me. So then let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team or how do you go about building your team and and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you? We have some structural advantages here, which is that this is the third company for me and my co-founders. And so we already had a pretty deep network. And so from the get-go, you know, a lot of what we did was sort of tap into that network or folks would hear, oh, you know, Jeff and Jessica and Wasim are up to something new. That sounds interesting. I liked working with them in the past. Like, let me join up with them. Let me reach out to them. So in some ways, like one of the most critical things we did to allow us to build a successful team in the early days was to be people that people wanted to work with. So this is in our previous ventures, in our time at Dropbox, in our time at MIT, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, just being like a smart, nice, collaborative person. And so having seeded the team with with a bunch of folks that we were we knew to be very good and that we were very excited about, then the question is like, okay, how do you maintain or even further improve kind of that hiring bar as you grow the team? And one thing is, of course, just like 
structurally and culturally reinforcing with the team the importance of hiring well and the kind of incredibly high leverage effects that hiring a person has on the business, making sure we're doing it really well. And the second is really designing processes to enable us to do that rigorously. Like as much as possible, we want the interview process to reflect the job that we're actually going to ask you to do so that I don't have to guess from some cryptic answer to some trick question about how well you'll do in the role. I should try to simulate that as much as possible in the job interview. So we very explicitly spell out ahead of time, like what are the requirements for the role and how do we design an interview loop that tests for each of these and how do we make sure that we run a fairly standard interview process where we have questions we feel well calibrated on and how do we get the team to debrief afterwards to make sure you know, we've identified kind of where the spikes and weaknesses of a given candidate are. And a lot of the art of hiring well is actually the hygiene of running a good process at every step in the process. Well, let's flip to scalability then. So was this built to scale efficiently from day one? And, and we'll, we'll go to the product, not the column and I'm your, I'm your accounting guy, but the actual product. Or have you been fighting this as you grow? What's interesting, I think, is that the biggest scaling challenges in some ways, not to downplay all of the work that goes into the software, because tremendous work goes into making it scale well. Today, we serve something like 2,000 customers where we're doing the accounting for these businesses. And that makes us, amusingly, that makes us one of the largest firms that does this in the United States. But N of 2,000 is not, you know, is not enormously large of an N. So yes, there are scaling challenges associated with high volumes of transactions, and you have to be thoughtful about how you architect your systems to enable that. And of course, we've been up-leveling that with time. But the, the kind of interesting thing about the business is that the default state of the world is actually to operate at almost no scale. And so we are sort of the unlock that lets us operate at a scale that no one else can is kind of the software and the tech and the process and the workflows that we've built internally. And I, I think the biggest things that have broken as we've scaled or that we've had, we've had to revisit are less like, oh, our choice of database was not performant enough and much more, well, we didn't have a process for doing this thing because it was fine. It used to just live in that person's head. And now we're at a size and stage and scale where we need a process to make sure we do it right every time. So the, the machine of pilot is this kind of interesting human software symbiosis. And that's the system you're optimizing, at least from my seat, rather than, you know, I need to improve the runtime of this particular function. Well, okay. As you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Two things, really. I think one is the team. I think we've assembled a really world-class team, and it's like a, it's an honor and a pleasure to work with everyone every day. And I feel like they challenge me to do my best work every day, and that's that's deeply, deeply satisfying. Like one of the reasons that one of the things I set out to do when we started this company was precisely to say, well, listen, I want to work with smart, talented people who I like and who challenge me to do good work. So I'm I'm excited that we've assembled this really world-class team. And I'm really proud of all the work we do for our customers. Like the reason that we exist is to make life easier for the founders and the business owners that we serve. And when we hit the mark on that, and we, and we almost always do, that feels really, really good. And by contrast, obviously, in the rare case that you miss, 
you know, that feels bad, but you sort of have a, you have an opportunity if you're kind of smart about it to set things right and to make it right. And so the, the things that I'm really most proud of are, I think of the, the team we've assembled and sort of the experience we're able to provide for the customers. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Again, the blessing and curse of our model is it's people and software. And so we're providing you this service on a monthly basis or an ongoing basis. And inevitably, unfortunately, even if the percentage error rate is super small, something is going to go wrong. So we unfortunately have, you know, a non-trivial amount of experience having made mistakes. And I think the, the key is not okay, never make a mistake. The key is, of course, minimize the probability that you make a mistake by putting into place good process and good software and good systems and checks, like all of that stuff. But also like when something goes wrong, like own it. And I think what I've sort of observed now across three startups is, of course, you don't want to make mistakes and no one is happy when you make mistakes. But what really matters is if a mistake has been made, how do you handle it? Like, do you get out in front of it? Do you own it? Are you accountable to it? And are you clearly signaling that like you're working hard to make things right? Or are you, I don't know, more dismissive of it or slower to respond or whatever? So culturally, we've really, really tried to emphasize this idea that like, look, responsiveness is key and like own it. We're accountable for the outcomes and and usually we get it right, but sometimes we don't. And when we don't, I found that the customer is a lot happier when you, you know, call a spade a spade and you say, hey, look, we fell short here and we feel bad about it. And here's what we're going to do to fix it. So... What does the future look like for Pilot, the product, and for your team? Our customers today, we, as we just described, we do effectively what, what I've called the financial back office. So accounting, tax prep, that kind of stuff. And what we've heard from our customers is that's all well and good. And they're very happy that we're helping them out in, in that way. And there's a ton of room to grow there. But what our customers really want is for us to run the entire back office for them. Meaning, yes, it's great that you can help me out with my accounting, but can you also help me out with HR or legal or IT or business insurance or lending or real estate or just any number of things here? Because again, the business owner, you know, they started their company because there was something they were trying to do in the world, not because they were deep experts at getting this stuff right. And getting this stuff right, like, can give you really su- real superpowers when you get it right. Like, if I can go to you and I can tell you, listen, I know about 1500 businesses like yours in your industry and you're paying way too much for thing x and here's how i can save you some money or you know there's this complicated legal issue that you were grappling with and we can help you solve it like all of the stuff we can do for you in the back office ultimately improves the probability of success for your business and hopefully like alters its trajectory in a really positive way so i think the 20-year vision is really we should run your entire back office for you for basically, eventually, every company in the United States and eventually, eventually, every company in the world. And the consequence of that should be, when we do that, that you get superpowers that you can't get anywhere else. And I and I contrast this frequently with, like, what is the experience at a big company? Like, at a big company, there's a whole army of people employed that run the back office, that help the business see around corners, that make them intelligent decisions about cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. And there are real benefits to those functions existing. If there weren't, you know, companies wouldn't wouldn't spend money on them. And yet the average kind of small or medium business doesn't have that support. So in many ways, we're kind of like democratizing this capability that exists in these large companies and we're bringing it to any business owner out there. And if we're doing it well, we're actually ultimately making them successful. 
the other analogy I like here is sort of by analogy to something like AWS, where if you look at AWS or cloud computing generally, like in our very first company, we had a bunch of servers in a data center somewhere and periodically the hard drive died or whatever. And you had to kind of make the trip out there and replace them or have someone do that. And that was just, that was believed to be the state of the art or the best thing you could accomplish. And then AWS and others came along and they said, you know what? We can do this stuff for you. And we are going to do it technically differently than anyone else. And those capabilities will, like the fact that we do it differently will unlock capabilities that you simply don't have today. Like you want a 5X RAM, like click here. You want to get a thousand machines spun up, click here. Like that was not possible with the kind of legacy incumbent providers. And ultimately the value proposition of something like an AWS is, look, if we run your tech infra, first of all, we'll do better than you can and you'll get superpowers from us that you couldn't get if you did it yourself. And I think the value prop for us is very similar, except rather than running your technical infrastructure, I would love for us to run effectively your company infrastructure or your back office, maybe said another way. And if we do that, we should be making your business kind of more scalable and giving it access to capabilities that you would not be able to get had you done it the kind of legacy way. Let's switch to you, Wasim. Who influences the way that you work? You name someone or lots of people or something you look up to and why? Probably on the most day-to-day basis, my co-founders, Jeff and Jessica, I feel like I'm learning stuff from them every day. And I'm just, it's, it is always a pleasure to work with them. I feel like it has, has really shaped how I think about my own role and kind of how I run the company. The other person I would name is this guy, Hans Robertson, who's a, one of our board members, actually. And he just has like a really amazing and storied career. And I just, he has been a source of really incredible advice about just the tactical aspects of running the business because he's done it before. He was one of the founders of this company called Meraki that Cisco acquired for, I think, like $1.2 billion or some, something like that. And so all of his advice is like, from the field it's like really battle tested it's not theoretical it's like well when we did this here were the pros and cons and here's how we thought about it and here's how it turned out and that has been just incredibly incredibly helpful and instructive to me well we talked about a mistake earlier but a little bit different spin if you could go back to the beginning what would you do different or where would you consider taking a different approach the blessing and the curse of our business is this kind of design choice of sort of people plus software each doing what they do best and kind of owning the outcome end to end, meaning that you hire us to do your accounting rather than buying accounting software from us. And I do think there was sort of an alternate path for the company where we said, you know what, we're going to make a pure play software utility that we sell to accountants or that we sell to finance teams at companies and, you know, they will use it just like they use any other piece of software. You know, I think on days when scaling the business is hard, you sometimes think about that, that other path. I mean, ultimately, the thing that makes our business so powerful is the set of choices that we've made. So I don't know that I have any big regrets of that form. I think probably like the things I would do differently are probably there were executives we should have hired sooner than we did because it would have just caused us to go faster or inflect the curve of the business more. And then I think always it's like you wish you had fought harder for the candidates who really moved the needle for you. You wish they were there sooner. And then similarly, probably like when there are situations where it doesn't work out from a personnel perspective, I find that people are often a little bit too slow to make changes there. And so sometimes you look back and say, well, maybe we should have been even more aggressive here about configuring the team in a way that was going to work for everyone. Well, last question, Masim. 
So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit several times? The first is like not to worry about playing the game. Said another way, there's there's all of this kind of like status marker stuff that people like to worry about as they go about running their business. Like, oh, are you venture backed? Who did you raise from? Like, how much did you raise? What was the valuation? Oh, are you going to this cool conference or did you get invited to this like exclusive dinner or like, you know, oh, my friend works at that cool startup. Like that's none of that stuff matters. Like what matters is actually being laser focused on delivering a high quality product to a customer that really needs it and wants to pay for it. There's like no right way to do that in the sense that like, okay, maybe it's VC backed, maybe it's not. Like, I, I just don't think that matters. You have to sort of maintain focus on the stuff that really matters and not get distracted by these kind of like fake work things. Because as I sort of just said, they're distractions. They will prevent you from being laser focused on the thing that actually creates value. Piece of advice number two is I think it is very easy for this stuff to be all-consuming. And I'm not saying that you don't have to work hard. Like, yes, you do have to work hard, and you will work a ton, and, like, you are accountable at the end of the day to everything that happens at the company, and sometimes that really does mean, like, the late night or the weekend or the whatever. But also, like, if it's going to be successful, you're going to be doing it for a long time. And so do it and structure it in a way that is sustainable for you. And sometimes that does mean, like, working a little bit less or taking more of a break or really kind of like being thoughtful about what will enable you to execute well over the long term rather than succumbing to the temptation of just like can i crank this out as fast as i can because like surely if we just build this one other feature like we'll finally you know everything will finally be good in the world like there's always more to do you're never going to be done and if that's the case you need to find a way to do it sustainably that's fantastic advice well, Wasim, thank you for being on the show today, and thank you for telling the creation story of Pilot. Thanks for having me. We have one little treat for your listeners, which is if they go to pilot.com slash code story, we can get them a 20% discount on their first six months of Pilot Core for any listeners. So if anyone's started their company or thinking about starting a company, definitely encourage you to check us out. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.